0: Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in
1: Education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and our conversation today is with Louis Michael Seidman. He is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law at Georgetown Law, and he is the author of the much-discussed Columbia Law Review article, Can Free Speech Be Progressive?, which will be the focus of this conversation. Professor Seidman? Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. It's my pleasure. So, in the first sentence of your article, you clearly state that no, free speech cannot be progressive. To get us started, can you kind of give us an executive summary of why that is? Sure. Maybe I should
0: start by introducing some qualifications. So, well, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not saying that um, free speech can never be used for progressive purposes. Uh, There are individual clients out there that lawyers have who um, are progressives who maybe uh, can use a free speech argument to get their way on occasion. I'm also not saying that free speech is bad or that we ought not to have free speech. There are lots of arguments that don't rest on progressive premises for freedom of speech. Um, What I am saying is that it's a mistake to think that um, free speech can systematically be used to advance a progressive program, and in fact, I'm saying something like the opposite, that um, as a systematic matter, not in individual cases, free speech tends to uh, promote non-progressive ends, and the reason for that is – is is uh, Uh, there are a lot of reasons, but the underlying reason is really pretty simple. And that is that um, in order to speak, um, and especially in order to speak effectively, you need property. And uh, progressives are in favor of redistribution of property in a fairer fashion. Um, And Redistribution of property inevitably involves redistribution of speech opportunities, and therefore, um, there is a tension, interestingly, that progressives at, in the beginning of the last century really recognized between free speech protection and property redistribution.
1: Your colleague, or former colleague, David Cole, who is now at the ACLU, um, although I believe he still has an appointment here at Georgetown, said that This sort of argument about property rights and those who have more property have more access to speech vehicles uh, proves too much. His argument is that the more property or wealth one has, the better defense attorneys you can hire, for example, the easier it is to gain access to birth control. Uh, You can buy guns if you're a believer in the Second Amendment. You can travel more freely. You can start your own business. You can better protect your privacy. So isn't that the case in every right and the protection of every right that we uh, value in our Bill of Rights? Well, I don't know whether it proves too much or proves just the right amount.
0: <laughs> I, uh, so we're talking about free speech, and I, I, I don't want to overgeneralize because I've bitten off enough with just talking about the, the free speech right. But I do think it's generally true that um, it's going to be very difficult to have an effective rights regime with respect to anything in a society where um, there is so much um, inequality in in the amount of wealth people have and the amount of property they own. So yes, this applies uh, to other rights as well. I think what is um, especially striking, though, with regard to free speech is that The Supreme Court has now figured this out, that there is this relationship between government regulation on the one hand, regulation of of wealth and power, and free speech on the other. And that's why in recent years, to use um, Justice Kagan's expression, the court has weaponized the First Amendment and turned it into a powerful argument for deregulation. My point about that is – as unfortunate it is, as it is, it's not um, completely indefensible as a matter of free speech law because free speech is associated with property ownership.
1: So what are some of those examples that the Supreme Court has taken recently in um, sort of breaking down that barrier between property rights and free speech? I'm assuming you're thinking of the Janus case, some of the campaign finance cases of the past 10 years. Well, you've got it. <laughs> um But um, it goes beyond that. The court has, for example,
0: limited um, um, the ability of the government to regulate cigarette advertising or to regulate uh, uh, doctors uh, disclosing confidential information about their patients or to, um, uh, to regulate the way prices are stated by merchants. And this is a growth industry, Um, because the truth of the matter is almost all government regulation of the market involves some uh, expressive um, aspect to it. So think, for example, about securities law and misrepresentation of the value of securities. That has an expressive aspect. One might even, if you go back to things like um, um, Lochner, the case about whether the government can impose maximum hour and minimum wage laws, one could imagine a, a merchant saying, um, "You know, I'm by doing that, I'm expressing my views about the way capitalism ought to function." So, there, there, if, if you take a really expansive view of freedom of speech, then um, you also are taking an expansive view of. Uh, immunity from government regulation more generally. Now, of course, somebody could take a narrower view of free speech, and then
1: it's less of a problem, but that's just because you've taken a narrower view of free speech. And you have a little bit of a history lesson in your article. You look at how the First Amendment has been interpreted for the past 200, 250 years uh, since it was passed, uh, and you say that there has in history, or maybe the story of America, is the story of a narrower interpretation of free speech that has gradually expanded. Do you think there was a point in which the government ever interpreted uh, free speech protections correctly? Do you believe that, for example, in the 1970s, that was the golden age of First Amendment jurisprudence and it's just expanded beyond its original intended scope since then? So now we get into um – Views I have that are
0: really radical. You you haven't heard anything yet, and uh, I I just hope um, people can bracket um, what I'm about to say and not treat me as a raving maniac and so disregard everything else. Well, this is what I'm going to say, but (laughs) well, fun for you. I don't know about for me, but I, 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 as a general matter, I think it is a uh, mistake to view us as bound by constitutional language or to treat issues about freedom of speech or anything else as a matter of interpretation of the Constitution. I think that gets in the way of thinking um, in a serious way about what's best as a a matter of public policy and and instead gets us embedded in essentially irrelevant questions about interpreting the language that was written 200 years ago by people who knew nothing about our present circumstances. So that's a more general view. Now, in t- just in terms of the history of uh, the free speech clause, I think it provides much less solace for progressives than people normally think it does. So the fact of the matter is that really up until uh, the First World War, um, there was no free speech protection. And... Governments on a regular basis um, went after radicals um, of of all kinds, and uh, th- there was essentially no Supreme Court protection for them under the First Amendment, and very little protection in, in, in the lower courts. Um, the uh, pivot point is usually treated as um, World War I and the great dissenting opinions by Holmes and Brandeis, which... For the first time set out in very eloquent terms um, a theory for free expression. What's largely ignored is that those opinions were uh, dissents and that indeed both Holmes and Brandeis themselves voted to uphold long prison sentences for um, uh, individuals who criticized World War I. It wasn't until after the emergency passed, when um, there was – progressives had much less need for a First Amendment that the court began to articulate uh, – to actually reverse convictions on First Amendment grounds. And, and then we had a repeat of the same story um, during the uh, McCarthy period where when, when the First Amendment was really needed to protect political radicals, the court caved. Um, um, it – most famously upheld long prison sentences for members of the Communist Party simply for advocating um, communist doctrine and, and those opinions uh, doing so were joined by progressives like Justice Frankfurter. Again, it wasn't until the late 50s when McCarthyism was no longer an important force that the court uh, began to provide some uh, protections. There was a kind of golden age during the Warren period where uh, there was First Amendment protection uh, accorded to civil rights demonstrators and anti-war demonstrators. Even then, though, the, the protection was very limited and uh, the court went out of its way, for example, not to provide protection for uh, people in the labor movement. In any event, the uh, Warren period was a very short period period in American history and uh, after it passed, um, the the protection for progressives waned. and today we are um, the the valence of the First Amendment is entirely flipped and it is mostly being used by anti-progressive forces to stymie government regulation.
1: I guess as a definitional matter, we should probably talk about what you mean. When you say progressive, Uh, I think you've kind of suggested it already in so far as the government takes a proactive role in redistributing wealth so that there is more economic equality. Um, What else is under the progressive program that free speech doesn't proactively protect? So um, the word progressive is – the definition
0: is contested. But just by stipulation, what I am referring to is people who – don't automatically trust market outcomes and believe that government has um, a role to play in regulating the market and redistributing wealth and in dismantling unjust hierarchies of power based on things like, like race or LBGT status or gender.
1: So it's more of a positive rights approach than the negative rights approach that our constitution often takes. For me, a lot of this boils down to sort of that philosophical conception of what the government should and and shouldn't do. And in particular, libertarians think the government should have a role in protecting negative rights. Uh, Progressives think that they should take that more proactive role. And you give a couple examples in here how this actually shapes out in the free speech debate. You say, if homophobic religious fanatics add to the pain of grieving friends and relatives at a military funeral, the mourners have no legal recourse. Uh, But if the government tries to prevent infliction of this harm, the fanatics can invoke judicial process to enforce their rights. That negative approach, the government cannot uh, step in, in the case of private action on another private individual. And you all similarly say, if Facebook takes down posts expressing political views it dislikes, that action is a manifestation of freedom, and the government's decision to do nothing about it raises no free speech concerns. But if the government intervenes to force Facebook to provide fair speech opportunities to all that action is is coercive, and there is at least a First Amendment problem and maybe a First Amendment uh, violation. You continue to say, progressives think the government has a duty to act affirmatively to counterbalance private power and correct for the unfairness of market allocation. So do you conceptualize this in a private and a negative rights, positive rights framework? Uh, So thank you for bringing that up. That's really
0: very useful, and it ties it to I think, a broader contradiction in the progressive program. And and indeed, this is a contradiction that early progressives uh, saw. People like um, the early John Dewey uh, saw this. I think Felix Frankfurter saw it. So so in general, the progressive stance, well, let me start with the uh, conservative stance. So in general, conservatives think through some sort of invisible hand process, unfettered markets just people buying and selling without government intervention, that that's going to produce justice. And so if some, if markets produce a situation where some people are poor and some people are rich and some people live longer and some people have short and miserable lives because that's produced in the absence of government, that somehow is definitionally fair. Um, Progressives reject that. They say there's nothing magic about markets. um, Yes, um, controlling markets involves public power, but if you don't control them, you have private power, and private power can also limit liberty. That's a central tenet that progressives have. So when the government uh, doesn't impose a minimum wage, that doesn't leave workers free to decide what wage they're going to get. It just puts them at the mercy of employers who, who use market power to dictate how much they get. Okay, so if progressives think that's true about everything else, why on earth do they think it's not true about speech? Um, um, Why do they think that the the, uh, allocation of speech opportunities is going to be fair just because it's what the market provides? Um, Speech opportunities are like economic opportunities. Uh, Markets don't necessarily – produce fair results, and, and by the progressives' own logic, one might think the government would have a role to play in reallocating speech opportunities, or to put it another way, sometimes when the government intervenes, it doesn't make people less free, it makes them more free. That was true with the, for example, the 1964 Civil Rights Act that made black Americans more free to um, travel in the South without being subjected to private coercion by, by store owners who wouldn't serve them. It might be true by government intervention that, for example, broke up Facebook and prevented Facebook from coercing people
1: um, by taking down what they say from their platforms. But could you still be a progressive but not an absolute progressive, which is to say that most of the time... It's a good thing when the government intervenes, but sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the pill you're taking is more than you bargain for. And you kind of predict this in your article. You predict these arguments against. you say um, if we take seriously the argument that the political branches are likely to be controlled by the enemy of, of progressives, we risk impeaching the progressive position more generally. The enemies of progressivism are more likely to win elections, then progressives should also want to shield property entitlements from spe- political interference. A reactionary state that suppresses progressive speech will also redistribute property in the wrong direction. As flawed as markets are, they are better off than this alternative. To be clear, the worry about reactionary government may be justified, but you say, if that's the case, then progressivism itself should be rejected. We live in the age of Donald Trump. I think it's fair to say he's no friend of the progressive cause. And when I talk to progressives of, put them in quotes, the old school uh, I think of Ira Glasser, he talks about free speech being an insurance policy, and think, he thinks of censorship as poison gas. Uh, it might make sense when the enemy's in the crosshairs and the wind's blowing in your direction, but the wind has a way of shifting, and you could be nipped in the butt for uh, uh, by your political enemies. So, I mean, can a true progressive say, yes, most times this is the case, where the government can get involved here? But in freedom of speech, the risk of the wrong sort of political regime is too great. So my my view is um,
0: essentially a pragmatic one where the government is in the control of the right people um, and where it's engaged in progressive redistribution, then one ought to favor what the government's doing. And that's true. With regard to property rights, and it's true with regard to speech rights. When the government is in control of the wrong people, when, for example, it's uh, redistributing property in favor of rich people and redistributing speech opportunities in favor of rich people, then we ought to oppose that. So my commitment is to progressivism, not to free speech, not to property rights, but to Progressive regulation of both of those um,
1: now I take and with the that, point- would that exist within a democratic framework sure, because then you would almost have to accept the idea that there could be a government that is the enemy of certain progressive causes unless you 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 structure a constitutional framework which has strong protections for those progressive causes y-
0: yes, but um what i don't understand is the inconsistency that progressives demonstrate in their treatment of property rights and speech rights. Mm-hmm. So look, um, the uh, the Trump administration could just close down the Washington Post, um, and that would raise First Amendment concerns. But you know what? They they could accomplish the same thing by just taking away all of Jeff Bezos's money. Um, and that That's would true. Be, <laughs> and, that, and that would be um, that would involve property rights. And So for somebody like Ira Glasser, I'm not sure why he thinks we need this insurance policy for free speech rights but not for property rights. The truth of the matter is any government regulation, whether of speech or property, can be um, abused. And when it's abused, progressives ought to stand against it. But that's not a reason for for standing against it when it's not abused and
1: when it's being used for progressive causes. So you could accept – uh, a situation where there is a non-progressive in office who is is violating or is censoring progressive causes, just on the principle that if we are progressive, we need to allow the government the authority to do this sort of thing. You would oppose it normatively, but as a structural constitutional matter, you'd say, "Yeah, they can do this. We just need to win at the ballot box."
0: So here we get to again to my more radical views about this. I, I um, the problem is not just about the First Amendment. The problem is about the Constitution as a whole. And I don't think that um, const- the, the resort to constitutional law is a good way of advancing progressive causes. Uh, and I think um, the, the, the the notion that one would limit current majorities because of some very crazy ideas people had 200 years ago or 250 years ago about a country that bore no resemblance to the country we live in now. The notion that that should control us, that requires some defense, and I haven't heard an adequate
1: defense for it. You say in the article that you're kind of agnostic about the various uh, free speech arguments and justification of the First Amendment. Uh, let me s- find where you, you say free speech theories premised on the search for truth, development of moral community, dignity, popular sovereignty, intellectual humility, or tolerance might be convincing on their own terms, but you say you're agnostic about that. It sounds like from what you just said that you're kind of agnostic about the negative rights framework that protects a lot of what we consider individual rights more generally in the sense that they are kind of the antithesis of democracy or of uh, the popular vote in that uh, it protects the minority of one against a majority that might seek to violate these sorts of rights. Is that a fair characterization of kind of what you're getting at here? Well, not quite, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> but
0: one has to uh, hold and reserve the possibility that what I'm getting at is completely incoherent. <laughs> and it may be talking to you for 45 minutes. will demonstrate that to everybody's satisfaction, in which case – I won't be so happy to be, to have been well, on your you program, know, but but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm
1: guess I'm just trying to, and maybe this is a failure of my creativity to imagine this. It's just I can't imagine a regime in which you cede all authority to a majority, in which we could always count on individual rights to be protected, uh, and that's kind of why you set up a democratic republican framework where most things are decided by democracy, with but limited by what we conceptualize as these. Various individual individual rights. So, I, I mean, I guess one way to ask the question is, where has this sort of framework worked before? So, um,
0: just to just to answer that question before yeah. going into uh, more detail, um, places where it's worked are the United Kingdom and. That doesn't have a written constitution. Right, yeah. right. And last time I looked, those yeah. were not dictatorial regimes. There wasn't rioting in the streets. I mean, Brexit is pretty bad, but I, I, I don't think that's because they don't have a written constitution. Um, so, so, of course, it works. Now, now, I, I do want to just clarify some things here. Um, there are arguments available, not, some of which are, might appropriately function as side constraints on progressivism for why free speech is a good thing. Um, I I, you know, in general, I think uh if people have things on their mind, they ought to be able to say them. Um and and one can develop sophisticated theories about that, but that that's an intuition I have. Um, it's just that these are um in the end, for me, essentially pragmatic and public policy questions. Um, so there's something to be said for Medicare for all. There's something to be said for letting people uh, engage in hate speech. Um, there's something to be said that for – there's a column in uh, uh, the Times today by David Brooks saying Medicare for all might be good in theory, but if you actually tried to put it in, into place, it might produce disaster. And so, too, one could imagine that hate speech regulations as a practical matter wouldn't work very well. Um, but I think it, it, it really gets in the way uh, when one starts, instead of thinking about speech that way, one starts to quote James Madison and uh, John
1: Peter Zenger and this is what the framers thought and uh, all, all of that stuff. Because it's a circular argument. It says that you say that free speech is good because the First Amendment says so without actually making the proactive argument That's for right. why the First Amendment is a good thing. And you talk about this in your That's article. That's
0: right. Geez, if one believes in free speech, then we're going to have free speech about free speech. Mm-hmm. And, and it ought to be, there ought to be a vibrant discussion about the virtues of free speech in various circumstances. And, and the trouble with constitutional law is it tends to cut the discussion off. Because when you say there's a First Amendment right to do this, what you're in essence saying is I don't have to give you a reason why I think it's a good thing to do it uh, because the Constitution just trumps all of that. You just say uh,
1: you can't do it because it's unconstitutional. And that, and that seems to me to be- I mean, don't to me you to kind of get our- that in the common law framework though sometimes? I mean, you have the discussion, but at a some point you need to decide uh, whether this speaker is allowed- to say this, and then at that point, it's well. Block. Who is the you? Well, I mean, if for for example, if I am uh, criticizing the government's position on Brexit, for example, and people are arguing X, Y, or Z reasons why that should be censored, as they have in the past when people criticize government, um, shouldn't there be some sort of framework to? You mean a judge? Would, yeah, a judge. Yeah. For example, I mean yeah. that's a, that's the the end point, the point at which you have to make a decision about what's tolerable in society in the same way you do with the Constitution. Yeah,
0: yeah. so I, I, judges decide cases. I'm not arguing about that. The, the question is the basis on which they decide them. And when they, when they say something is unconstitutional, then uh, there are really only two ways you can respond. Um, you can say, no, it's not unconstitutional. Maybe that's what the dissenting judges say. And if you say that, then you go down this rabbit hole of really irrelevant kinds of arguments about uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts 200 years ago and about um, whether free speech was meant by James Madison to go beyond prior restraint and about the relationship between the uh, 1688 Bill of Rights in England. You know, all sorts of stuff that just has nothing to do with the world we live in.
1: So So that's
0: one option. The other option, in theory, you could say, well, okay, it's unconstitutional, but I don't believe in obeying the Constitution. And if you say that in current American political culture, you're completely discredited. Now, that's very different from when a judge says, well, I think this speech ought not to be allowed uh, because if it is allowed, um, it's going to cut off more speech. Or it's going to uh, lead to the election being polluted. You know, something like that. Now, we can we can actually have an argument. So I can say, well, look, here are the facts. Actually, this speech is not going to have the bad effect you say it's going to so have. So you would
1: weigh the costs and benefits right. in each given case um, rather than look to what the Constitution and, allows for or doesn't allow and for. And if I
0: could just make one other point, mm-hmm. um, not only does it – lead us to talk about the things we ought to be talking about. It also lowers the temperature because um, if you say something is unconstitutional that I favor, what you are saying to me is you are willing to disregard our foundational document. You're not a real American. Um, You're in favor of something that's unconstitutional. You see this in public debate all the time, right, on both sides. So, we can't really talk about that. We can talk about facts in the world, right? Um, if, if, if you say Donald Trump is acting unconstitutional, unconstitutionally because he just doesn't understand separation of powers, that's something that really gets people angry. If you're saying the border wall's really a mistake because most of the immigrants, most of the illegal drugs are coming through checkpoints, and not um, where the wall is going to be built, that's a fact in the world. And at least until recently, people could argue
1: about those sorts of things without losing their temper quite as much. I'm liable to agree with you that uh, constitutionalizing the right to free speech, or any individual right for that matter, is a a fool's errand. While it might be helpful in any particular instance, it, it doesn't Create the robust culture of the protection of those individual rights that we seek to advance. This is, goes back to Judge Learned Hand talking about how uh, we place too much uh, faith in the Constitution, but when it dies in the hearts of men, uh, no Constitution can favor it. But I'm 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 just trying to wrap my head around how a situation such as you propose, where you're weighing the costs and benefits of of uh, any given action, government action, uh, wouldn't just be subject to the whims of an individual judge or an individual panel of judge. Would there be any role for precedent to play in this sure. sort, of anal- sort of analysis?
0: Sure. So um, again, you might think about the United Kingdom. They don't have um, a written constitution, but, but it doesn't follow from that that every time an issue comes up, they, they reconsider it. Um, there's a lot of inertial pressure. There's, uh, just ways that we've done things for a long time. There is people who are risk averse at changing things. So, um, in theory, um, the United Kingdom could change, um, the date on which parliamentary elections occur. Um, but, uh, so every, it, it might not be that every five years there has to be a new parliament, but in practice, people don't much argue about those things because it's, it's the way we've done things. Um, and, um, and, and unless somebody presents a good reason for not doing it that way, then
1: we continue to do it that way. Earlier, you were talking about kind of the two approaches you can take when you're you're looking at a constitutional argument, you could say, "Yes, this is constitutional though this isn't a constitutional or you could just ignore the Constitution you were talking about earlier There's that famous I believe apocryphal line from uh, uh Andrew Jackson, the Supreme Court writer to judgment against him, and he said, "Okay, now let them enforce it uh, That's kind of my broader worry about the constitutional framework is that again, this goes back to learn at hand. I mean, if there is no respect for that constitutional framework, then there's no means." For enforcing it. And and any scholar of uh, the late Roman Republic will recognize that one of the big reasons for its downfall is they had laws, yes, but they had no way to enforce them. So let's get back to free
0: speech and let's get back uh, to to, to our history. Yeah. Um, It turns out that um, with the constitution, um, when we've really needed it, it hasn't done much good. Mm -hmm. So in periods where there was popular revulsion against minorities.
1: Um, neither the Constitution nor um, judges did much about it. I mean, but you do, you do concede in the civil rights era. There was some of this. In the gay rights movement, there was the one decision, for example, that prohibited the government from uh, censoring distribution of uh, homosexual literature through the mails. I mean, there has been instances. There have been isolated instances. Um, it's a
0: really mistake. Big mistake to blow those out of proportion. Over the sweep of our history, um, the Constitution and the Supreme Court's enforcement of the Constitution has really remarkably little to do with the level of civil liberties protection. And in in a way, that shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, um, the Constitution, it's located about a mile from where we're speaking now. It's in the National Archives. It's safely in a glass case it doesn't command any troops it doesn't do anything it's just a piece of paper and it's an article of faith in a sense it's it's an article of faith that people have but um the faith is really i think misplaced because you know when you really need it when you have a a, a tyrant who wants to suppress the rights of people
1: somebody like that's not going to be stopped by a piece of paper i don't want to get too esoteric here but i mean isn't much of how we construct society an article of faith? The the $10 bill in my wallet, for example, is an article of faith that that actually means someone to the person I'm going to give it to. Uh, so don't you need those in order to- You need- cons- y- yes.
0: You need, you need people to have basic faith in the system, but that leads to the question of what actually holds the country together, and here things I think get really worrisome because- I think what holds the country together is not a piece of paper written 250 years ago that has very little relevance to our modern situation. It's a sense that we are all in this together, that we sink or swim together. It's a kind of vague sense of tolerance of the the fact that we have differences and that there are other people we inhabit this country with. Um, It's a set of non-constitutional norms about restraints on power that come in part from the fact that you know you're not always going to be in power, and in part just from regard for other human beings and and and, and a sense that we are all Americans. And that's what's really eroding. Um uh, and, and that's what uh we can see before our, our eyes kind of falling apart. and And that's if- why.
1: During times of war, for example, nationalism goes up, support for the national government goes up, people put their flags up. Uh, That might not be the time in which you want people to come together, but it seems to be the time in which they do because there's this shared cause or this shared set of values that are privileged at that time.
0: But what's I guess what I find disturbing is, um, no, we're not at a time of war, but even in times of peace in the past. Um, there has been –
1: The space race, for example.
0: Well, it's not just I, – I would say even in completely normal times, uh, we have had a, a kind of glue that's held us together, what Lincoln called the mystic cords of memory, um, a sense of shared identity. And in, in the era, era of
1: Trump, although I think it began before Trump, that, that has started to erode. Would you have and, to – Reshape our identity in order for the framework that you, the progressive framework that you privilege and that you think would be most beneficial to society, for that sort of thing to work? Because our our sense of national identity right now is kind of wrapped around this negative rights framework of the Constitution.
0: Well, I I don't know that that's true, or at least it hasn't been true for all of our history. Um, um, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, proposed uh, the Four Freedoms and a new yeah. Bill of Rights. Those were positive rights. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, freedom the, from fear, freedom that's from right. want. Yes. The
0: 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is effectively part of our Constitution, even though not formally, uh, that guarantees positive rights. It, it guarantees um, um, a right of African Americans not to be discriminated against by places of public accommodation. Uh, Social security... Um, the minimum wage, all of those are positive rights. So uh, it's not that our political culture is uniformly hostile to positive rights.
1: It's that constitutional rhetoric tends to be. interesting. You and I were talking uh, before the podcast about why this article got so much attention. Uh, and I said I had a theory that I wanted to posit to you. Uh, and that theory is... Uh, that for a lot of people, the word progressive is associated with a good ideology. So progressivism equals good. And if free speech does not equal progressive, then free speech does not equal good. Uh, To me, it's kind of a misuse of the transitive property, but I think that's how a lot of people have interpreted it, especially since I I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, your article was written for a progressive audience uh, who still has faith in the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Um, do you think people have interpreted it that way and, and, and kind of put the word good in place of progressive when reading your, ti- your title, can free speech be good? So
0: first of all, let me just correct a misimpression you have. The, re- <laughs> the reason the article's gotten so much attention is because it is a great work of scholarship. But, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I I have to say, honestly, I'm not used to my work uh, getting much attention. You, normally, um, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, my father passed away, and that was sad for many reasons, but among the reasons was because I'd lost my only reader. <laughs> so, so I'm not used to it getting this much attention. But if people think that what I'm saying is because progressivism is good, and because free speech is not progressive, therefore free speech is bad, that is a misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, um, There are lots of reasons why one might favor freedom of speech that are not rooted in progressivism. And one can be a progressive and still believe that there are side constraints on the pursuit of progressive goals, and freedom of speech might uh, be such a side constraint. What, What I would say the thesis of the article is is that if you think free speech is good because it's progressive, then you need to rethink that. But even if it's not good for that reason, it might be good for other reasons.
1: You argue that modern First Amendment law makes progressive political victories much more difficult and often impossible. Have the uh, 2018 midterms kind of changed your opinion on that? I think about people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who defeated a very powerful Democratic incumbent. Uh, Bernie Sanders almost took down Hillary Clinton. Uh, In this sense, money doesn't have as much to play if the message that that money supports doesn't resonate with the voters. Jeb Bush had a lot more money than uh, Donald Trump had for the campaign, Uh, I think. Back to some other big upsets during the Tea Party era, in which underfunded candidates defeated um, incumbent candidates, based in part, at least I, I'd suspect, on their message. So I think what I'd say about
0: that is, uh, yes, I am much more optimistic about things than I
1: was before the elections. Um, we should say this came out in 2018. Your article
0: it came, it came out before, before November election, of 2018. Yeah. Yes. So so things to some extent are looking up. But I do think um, if one takes a, a longer view of uh, being a progressive, um, being on the left, it's always going to be an uphill fight. Um, it's always going to be the case that you're fighting against long odds and that um, – the, the chances of victory victories, victories are, are are temporary and and have and have to be str- each one has to be struggled over and and that is because the basic claim that progressives make is that social power is unfairly distributed and if that's what the claim they're making then it follows from that claim that social power is going to be arrayed against uh, progressive causes now that doesn't mean that victories are impossible. There have been times in our country where um, progressives have prevailed, but here's the really key point. They haven't prevailed because of the Supreme Court and the Constitution. Uh, They've prevailed because uh, people were willing to do the really hard work of organizing, because they got really angry, um, because they put their freedom and life on the line sometimes, because they acted as... Role models for other Americans, um, not because the Supreme Court came and bailed them out, not because some piece of paper written two hundred fifty years ago commanded that they win, they prevailed because they convinced people.
1: I want to explore two more uh, arguments that you present in this paper that I think are really fascinating and I, and this first one uh, gets at kind of how we could redefine property rights to uh, become more progressive, Uh, and you use Dale v. Boy Scouts of America as an example of how this can be done, and I don't know that I've ever heard this before, so this was uh, an interesting thought experiment for me. You write that state anti-discrimination law prohibited the Boy Scouts from excluding individuals from the organization because of their sexual orientation. The Boy Scouts claimed that the law violated their right to expressive association by requiring them to endorse a lifestyle they opposed. But this argument depended on the unstated assumption that the Boy Scouts were owned by an organization called the Boy Scouts of America. Suppose, though, that one treated the anti-discrimination statute as adjusting this property claim. Although the Boy Scouts of America retained most of the sticks in the bundle, the statute created a kind of non-discrimination easement and vested that property right in people like Dale. If Dale had the entitlement in the first place, then the free speech rights cut the other way the Boy Scouts would be violating Dale's speech rights by utilizing his property to advance their ideological ends. So is that a novel argument uh, to this paper, or is that kind of an argument that's been made in progressive circles, that you create uh, sort of property rights that go in the other direction from the individuals and away from the association? So uh, pardon me if I get
0: a little esoteric here, but this, this is tied to a, a kind of a Broader development in constitutional law. So, um, with the New Deal, when progressives gained control of the Supreme Court, there was a kind of constitutional settlement that was reached. And speaking in very broad terms and somewhat simplistically, the settlement was civil liberty rights are fixed and can't be changed, but property rights are contingent and can be changed by the government. So free speech is protected. Property rights are not. The government can transfer property from one person to another, redistribute progressive taxation, and so on. The point of the Dale example is that settlement ultimately doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because free speech rights are parasitic on property rights. So if you can switch property rights, you can also switch free speech rights. So we might think about who owns the Boy Scouts of America. If if the ownership of the Boy Scouts, after all, a kind of property right, could be redistributed by the government. If, if the government can say, no, it's not owned by this corporation, it's owned by maybe the individual Boy Scouts, then that changes the free speech right, right? Because now the owner of the property, that is to say the Boy Scouts are or Mr. Dale is asserting a free speech right. Um and it's the it's the Boy Scouts of America that are getting in the way of the
1: free speech right. And and that so, speech right might not be progressive. Dale might have a non-progressive approach. He might.
0: He might, but, but the basic point is that um this progressive solution to the problem doesn't work. And 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 it's not working um has implications that I think are very unsettling. So uh, let's not talk about the Boy Scouts of America. Let's talk about the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And suppose the government comes along and says, um, just as a property right matter, um, Arthur Sulzberger thought he owned the New York Times, but, but actually he, do- he doesn't. The New York Times is owned by its readers. And we're going to transfer that Property, you know, maybe we'll give him just compensation or something, but we're just going to transfer the property right to the readers. Well, then um, the New York Times doesn't have what we think of as freedom of the press anymore. They they don't have the right to not publish some story that some reader wants published. So, um, so this solution doesn't work now. Um, if it doesn't work, there are two ways to get around the problem. You could fix property rights. That's what libertarians want. And by the way, libertarians regularly make this argument. Um, so no, it's not original with me. It's people on the far right have made it for a long time. You can't have free speech without free property. Um, so we could become libertarians and fix property rights. Um, if you don't do that then the only other alternative is to make speech rights contingent. And that's, of course, what uh, progressives don't want, but I, I don't see a way of avoiding it if you're going to have property rights up for grabs the way progressives want them up for grabs.
1: I want to close out here by asking you about one critique of your article, which could be that social media has democratized speech in a way that couldn't have been conceived of 30 years ago. Uh, And you you address this. You say, one might suppose that this democratization of speech breaks the link between wealth and speech opportunities. In fact, though, the change exacerbates rather than diminishes the difficulty for progressives. In a world where there is too much speech, people need a filter. My question is, what if that filter becomes the government? Uh, We look at what happened in the Arab Spring back in 2011 or so when Egypt was filtering out uh, sort of that revolutionary speech, uh, arguing, of course, that it w- that it was bad. What do you make of that sort of argument?
0: So, there's no no question that governments can be tyrannical, and and uh, one of the ways they're tyrannical is by controlling speech. The fundamental point that progressives make is that private forces can be tyrannical also. So yes, if if the government Um, suppose Facebook were made a uh, a public entity. Uh, The government might use its power to filter out um, speech it didn't like. But as things stand now, um, Facebook has the power to filter out speech it doesn't like. And there is one difference between Facebook and the government. Um, Nobody ever elected Mark Zuckerberg to anything. um, But... Uh, our government is subject to elections. And if 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 Facebook were a public entity and people didn't like what the government was doing, at least in theory, they could elect a new government. At least that is the position progressives have traditionally taken about government regulation. Um, and so I, I guess I want to close where I started. I, I think that um, if my article – does anything it produces it 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 creates um a kind of uh tension that progressives need to think about between their positions
1: on property
0: redistribution and their positions on speech redistribution but
1: but you also have a non-property related argument against uh you know the position or the the idea that social media has democratized speech, you write the First Amendment doctrine is a, dominated by obsession with government restrictions on speech and with government interference with listener autonomy, which you just spoke to, but you say it's ill equipped to deal with a world where there is too much speech and wh- where listener autonomy makes real conversations impossible. What do you mean there
0: so there is a um i'm not original in thinking this there, <laughs> there is a problem with siloing and Tim uh, Wu
1: talks about this sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. So
0: so um, per, perhaps more than in the past, um, people are subjected to only speech that they're inclined to agree, agree with in the first place. So um, I um, am old enough to remember when um, the national conversation about politics was dominated by the three networks. And... Um, those networks filtered out speech and people on the left and the right, on the far left and the right, far right certainly didn't get a fair shot. But um, they filtered out speech um, much less than um, the the narrow casting that goes on now. They had the fairness doctrine back then, There uh, there was the fairness doctrine. It wasn't all that effective.
1: Because like you said, it it filtered out the far right and the far left. Right, right. (laughs) But there
0: was, I, I think it's, it's correct to say, um, there was less of a problem with this narrow casting that, that exists now. And our first amendment doctrine is not very well equipped to uh, deal with that problem.
1: So last question here, this article was probably published, what, a year ago about at this point? Uh, less than that. Yeah. Have any of your opinions changed since the article was published? (laughs)
0: My opinion since I came out of the womb, have <laughs> <I laughs> remained constant. If your opinions I, don't I, change, I don't know. How do you I, know your mind's so, working. So um, here is the, the, uh, the dirty little secret. Um, I write or I try to write as if I have answers to these problems and I try to talk with a lot of confidence. Um, the truth of the matter is I'm not sure about anything and um, all of the views I hold are or held in a contingent way and subject to my being shown to be completely wrong or, or or even just a complete idiot about it. I live in terror of that, but it happens on a regular basis. And um, if you want to ask the question, um, what produces um, a mature and well-functioning republic, I think um, uh, without patting myself on the back too hard. I think it is an attitude like that, that we hold all our views contingently and they're subject to revision. Well, that's one of the normative arguments for free speech. But but that's where the paradox comes. Um, free speech advocates seem to not be open to revision of their views about freedom of speech. So that is taken just as a ground-level faith that that they can't be proved wrong about and and what i want to do is is
1: um challenge some of the t- certitude about that are you going to write any more about free the free speech clause of the first amendment now that this oh, article probably. has gotten so much attention i'm
0: i'm i'm working now on a project about uh, progressive and populist views of civil liberties and we didn't get to talk about this really at all but i think if you look historically at What progressives have done with free speech, often what they've done um, is to protect people like themselves against um, mass opinion. Oddly, the
1: free speech
0: of the masses that they think of as very threatening.
1: Well, that was the raison d'etre for the founding of the ACLU. Uh, You had a lot of um, pro-labor, anti-war activists who were being jailed. And and so they, they came up with a reformulation of what the First Amendment should protect, right? That was like 100 years ago, 1920. So um, you may want to edit this out. <laughs> okay. But I, I've
0: become obsessed with the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yeah. And what's really interesting about the Scopes Monkey Trial involving evolution, you a, had this-
1: A, a teacher at an uh, elementary school or a K-12 environment presenting arguments for evolution in Tennessee. That's right. and Against the law. The, the
0: ACLU participated in that case. Um, and the argument the ACLU made was, gee whiz, we have to protect the free speech of this teacher to speak his mind about evolution. But it turned out that wasn't the ACLU's position at, at all. It's not like the ACLU thought teachers should be allowed to say anything they
1: wanted. Um, For example, they wouldn't go in and argue that it's the First Amendment right of this teacher to teach creationism. Or they might. Well, they they, in fact did not
0: when that. But but they wouldn't say, gee whiz, an individual teacher has a right to teach that math is the work of the devil.
1: Or that the earth is flat. Or that
0: the earth is flat, or that um, communism is the best form of government. Um, What the ACLU was defending was not freedom of speech. It was evolution. <laughs> and why was it defending evolution? It was defending evolution because those, that was the view of the kind of people who joined the ACLU. And who were they defending it against? They were defending it against uh, mass opinion of people who thought evolution was wrong and, and attacked their basic, their basic understanding of
1: the universe. Well, this is one of those ways and you talk about how free speech can be open and textured, or is open and textured. Uh, We see this in the the campus context all the time, whereby you have an individual academic freedom right to present an argument, but the department in which you teach also has the academic freedom to hire professors who, for example, um, don't argue that the earth is flat.
0: Right. There were not um, many creationists in biology
1: departments. Yeah. So, Professor, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for talking with me today. And I should add that you'll be speaking at Brooklyn Law School here in April? Yes, in April. In April, about uh, 100 years, 50 years since uh, the incitement standards were were introduced. Well, thank you for your patience. And this was just a lot of fun. I really appreciate uh, you asking me. That was Georgetown Law Professor Louis Michael Seidman and his article for The Columbia Law Review is entitled, Can Free Speech Be Progressive? We had this conversation on Tuesday, March 5th, at the Georgetown Law Center. So to Speak, the Free Speech podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So to Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at fire.org. Or call calling a question for a future show at 215 315 If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening.